Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the providences of King Asuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. All the officials of the providences and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And, jumping to verse 10, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king... Let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's province, provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Jumping over to verse 24. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Let's pray together. God, we come to you to study your word. And I ask that you would just open our hearts and our ears, help us to hear your word and change us. Lord, your word is truth. Amen. So this passage is hard. I've never liked the ending of Esther. I've been learning about, the, about God and the Bible since I was a child. And ever since I was old enough to understand what was going on, the book of Esther has always been difficult for me to, um, to line up with all the other stuff that I was learning about God. I was learning about God's grace, learning about God's forgiveness, learning about 
God's mercy and patience and his mission to send his son Jesus to save you and me from an eternity in hell. We'll talk more about that later. But then we hit stories like this. We hit stories where God and his people kill and destroy. And they kill and destroy a lot of people. What happened to turn the other cheek? What happened to love your neighbor? And why does it seem to all go out the window in today's passage? What about you? Do you wonder about stories like these from the Bible? Do you struggle with the apparent contradiction of evil and the character of God and how that works? Everyone who reads the Bible for any length of time will come across stories like this. And if you're paying attention, you will hopefully wonder why. Hopefully, you will see tension and stress and violence and ask the question, why is this here? And what do I do with this? Do I try to uncontradict this from what I know of God or do I just ignore it? Do I try to harmonize this with the forgiveness of Jesus somehow? Do I explain it away as untrue or unhistoric? When we come to conflicts of behavior and beliefs like this, we naturally try different solutions to deal with the dissonance and the disharmony we experience. How do we fit this large-scale annihilation into the larger story of grace and forgiveness in the Bible? So yes, I feel a large amount of disharmony and dissonance with the way Esther ends. Maybe you do too. It is a similar struggle to what some people experience when they read about Israel entering the promised land and all the fighting and battles and destruction that they find in those stories. It's difficult reading. So let me encourage you with this. Well, anyway, this idea is at least encouraging to me. This dissonance that we find here in Esther, it's by design. It's in the story on purpose. On the surface, it's easy to interpret the dissonance as a storyline blunder. That whoever decided to put Esther in the Bible didn't know the greater storyline of the Bible well enough. And now this annihilation stuff sticks out like a sore thumb. But this just isn't true. Not only did God direct the composition of the Bible, giving even these hard parts purpose and belonging, but the authors of the scriptures were literary geniuses. They were storytelling experts. And they knew the scriptures inside and out. They were far more intimate with the Holy Scriptures than we could ever hope to be. The author of Esther knew what they were doing when they added this apparent disharmony and tension. But why? Why would they do that? Why is it here? Exactly. Why is it here is the question they want us to ask. So we have a choice when we come across passages like this. We can think, wow, that's terrible. Oh, well, let's keep reading because it just counts that I have read it. Or we can stop and ask the question, why is this here? And we can look for the answer. So at FCC, we have a group of young up and coming leaders that we disciple whom we call our residents. And this past summer, we took the residents through a study of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the process of rightly studying, interpreting, and understanding the Bible. And one big thing we learned is that the Bible is ancient Jewish 
meditation literature. We sometimes forget that this book, that the Bible is thousands of years old, but we want to tend to read it as if it were modern. The truth is we can't do that. Ancient Jewish meditation literature is designed to be consumed slowly. It is designed to be read daily. It is designed to be poured over deeply. And so when we get to this point in the Esther story, where we see and feel disharmony with the rest of the Bible, the exact thing we are supposed to do is stop. Ask why and dig in deeply to uncover what the author is trying to communicate with their audience. So this encourages me. This dissonance has a purpose and we can figure out what it is. So let's talk about that. So let's get back into the Bible. Read along with me. We're going to be starting at chapter 9, uh, verse 1 again. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and, uh, and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them. Okay, so pause here for a minute. I want to shed uh, some light on the situation. The day had arrived for the initial edict from Haman to destroy the Jews was to take place. But I want to put this event into more understandable terms for us. Imagine this happening in your neighborhood. A presidential law goes out into effect that legalizes the genocide of a minority group everywhere. If you kill any of the people in this group, you get all of their stuff for free. And your neighbor decides to cash in on the offer. They get their weapons ready and they tell you about their plans to do away with the family and the houses uh, in the house three doors down. And this is about to happen all over the country. On top of that, it's legal. So you can't stop them and they won't face any criminal charges. It is truly disturbing to imagine it. Think modern day Holocaust, but worse. These people were monsters. All right, let's keep going. On that very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. Verse 5. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. So a quote from a commentary that I read says this, the Jews showed no mercy to their enemies. They massacred those who hated them. There were no restraints imposed on them by the king. The Jews did not limit themselves to self-defense. They hunted out and destroyed those who might harm them. Their fury can only be understood by those who have experienced a long history of unjustified persecution. An interesting perspective on what is going on here. Okay. Okay. Verse six. In Susa, the citadel itself, 
the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And verse 10, the 10 sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. So in the next few verses we skip, we see the Jews slaughter their enemies and then Esther asking the king for a second day of fighting in Susa. So let's pick it back up at verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hand on on the plunder. So at this point, I am feeling the dissonance pretty heavily. I understand self-defense and fighting back to protect your lives of your family and friends for sure. But why two days? Why 75,000 people? On the surface, this seems to be the reverse of what I want to believe about God's character and plan for humanity. It's confusing. So like I was saying, we need to slow down and ask why this is here. If we expect to understand what the Bible is saying accurately, we can't rush past this. We have to stop, think about it, meditate on it, and treat the Bible like the ancient Jewish meditation literature that it is. So when I do this here in Esther, I find a few themes that open my eyes to the larger storyline and help me to see what's going on here. The first theme, of course, is the hidden king. We have to remember that in the book of Esther, the Jews are in a time of discipline from God. God handed them the promised land flowing with milk and honey, and he promised it uh, would stay theirs for as long as they obeyed him. However, If they turned to follow the other gods and cultures around them, God would hand them over to their desires. The first theme, of course, is the hidden king. We have to remember that in the book of Esther, the Jews are in a time of discipline from God. God handed them the promised land flowing with milk and honey, and he promised it would stay theirs for as long as they obeyed him. However, if they turned to follow the other gods and cultures around them, God would hand them over to their desires and let them pursue those gods and the cultures and receive the consequences that came with that, which leads to exile. In Deuteronomy 31, 18, God says, and I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. And that is exactly what happens. The Jewish people turn to other gods. The Jewish king, uh, kings, they make some bad alliances. So kind of think like making deals with the mob for protection. And God allows their new friends to come and take them into exile. So if God were to be active during this exile, it would be hidden. Why? Because he said, you won't see my face. That's why Esther is written like this. So If God were to be active, we would see it in a more natural, not so split the sky open kind of way. The second theme is that God is always faithful. God made another promise to his people, a promise to eventually bring them back from exile. Ezekiel 11, 16 through 17 says, thus says the Lord God, 
Though I remove them from off among the nations, I, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. The story of Esther illustrates how both of these themes work in the history of God and his people. We see God hiding his face from them, but at the same time, he remains in control in hidden ways. We see God remaining faithful to Israel by being a sanctuary to them, and he keeps them protected so that he could eventually keep his promise of bringing them back to the land of Israel. He will not allow their enemies to destroy them. God remains faithful even when it doesn't feel or look like it to you or I. All right, the third theme. We find a reminder of God's ultimate theme of the entire Bible, which he started putting into action the day evil entered the story way back in Genesis when he cursed the serpent. In the book of Esther, God reminds his people and us that he will eventually destroy evil. God promises to bring a final solution for the struggle that we have with the ultimate enemy. I want to remind you of the curse slash promise God made to the serpent in the Garden of Eden, the first enemy of God and man. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So notice three things with me. Notice number one, it's the king of the universe giving the curse. Notice number two, the injury to the head of the enemy. And notice number three, the inclusion of the offspring of the enemy. Now let me take you to the last verses of our section of scripture today, which summarize Esther, and you will see this curse paralleled. So let's pick it up at verse 24. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. And he casts per, that is cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he has devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. So it's slightly hidden here because, well, it's the book of Esther. But the parallel is there. In these verses, we see one, Haman taking the position of the enemy serpent in the garden. Number two, the king turning his plans of destruction back onto his head, just like God does in the curse on the serpent. And we see three, the curse reaching to Haman's offspring, just like in the curse on the serpent. This is all purposeful design. Remember, the biblical authors were literary geniuses who knew the Bible well. Esther's author is connecting to Genesis here in the book of Esther to tell us that God's original plan is still working and that God is still in control 
Even when the Jews were in discipline, even when they were in exile, even when God is hard to see, even when the Jews feared for their lives, God was going to be faithful to his plan to save humanity, to save the Jewish people, and to one day do away with all evil. This, this is the answer we were looking for. This is the why we find the, dis, uh, the dissonance and disharmony at the end of Esther. When we look deeper, we see the outline of God's greater mission start to appear. We see the serpent take form in Haman. We see the destruction of evil in the enemy of the Jews. And we see God working it all out in his way and power. Esther is a reminder that God will, own, will one day make all things right because he promised to do so back in Genesis. Well, I have some bad news and some good news. So the bad news, if God's plan is to destroy and remove all evil, then it means removing all of us and the rest of humanity because we all have evil hearts. Not one of us has any hope on our own. The Bible tells us that we are enemies of God. But the good news, the good news is that God decided to do something about that. God sent his son to live a righteous life and die on the cross to pay for our sins. Jesus did this so that he could exchange our evil for his righteousness. And some more good news, God has made Jesus the king. It is Jesus who is king. It is Jesus the king who offers his righteousness. It is Jesus the king who will ultimately remove all evil from the world. That is fantastic news. So now let's talk about this election. Some people watching this may be super excited about the outcome of the election. Some people may be super scared about it. You may fear that our country is on a path toward ruin and destruction, and it might be. But what you have to remember is that as Christians, the president is not our true king. And America is not our true kingdom. Instead, we are members of the kingdom of God, and it is Christ who is our king. It is through Christ that our ultimate salvation has come. And it is Christ who will deal with all evil at his second coming. It will not be through the right president. It will not be through the right political party, either being in or out of power. Our king is turning the evil serpent's plan back on his head. Our hidden king is Christ the king. Our hidden king is Christ the king. Friends, if our hidden king can orchestrate the details to save his people in Esther and the rest of the Bible, then he is more than capable of using your hardship for good. Let's think about the, this question that we're going to put up here for just a minute together. Is your trust in Jesus to ultimately deal with evil, or are you expecting another king to be able to deal with it? Who is the king that you are actually trusting in? Friends, your only hope is Jesus. This world's only hope is Jesus. Only he can fix the problem of evil in this world. If you 
have not accepted that righteousness for evil exchange that Jesus offers you for free. He offers this, his righteousness to you. Reach out to us. Mention it in the connect card. If you would like to know more about what it means to follow Jesus and to find forgiveness of all of your sin. Friends, pray with me. God, you are so amazing. You are faithful. And even when you might seem hidden, even when we might feel far from you or unable to see your hands working, we can trust that you are. And we can trust that you will make your plan happen. We can trust that you can use the hardships in our life for your good and for ours. And we can trust that even if it looks like the world is getting worse and worse and worse around us, you are in control. You will make your ultimate plan happen of ridding the world of evil. We praise you for that. We thank you for your love. Thank you for loving us first. Amen.